Before you get stuck into today's wonderful episode on interoception, I want to make sure that you all know Tracy's spirit model training is now widely available to those who are interested. If you are listening to this podcast and enjoy these kinds of discussions, then I can 1000% recommend the spirit model training that Tracy and her team at DFX have so diligently put together so that people all around the world who have been asking and asking for them to do training on this can access it. So if you want to deepen your practice and improve your ability just to think holistically about treatment and how to best come at these complex dynamic situations that we find ourselves in in treatment, then hit the link in the description and check it out because it will be so, so worthwhile. The other small side note is that a little while ago, Seed was asked by a local preschool to put together an online course on the basics of regulation, how it unfolds typically in development, how to integrate some of this new theory around polyvagal states and how we think about that as occupational therapists, along with some practical strategies to support it either at home or in an educational setting. So I wanted to let people know that that course is available And so if that's useful to one person listening on this podcast, then it will have been worth my time mentioning it. So if you have a parent or you're working with somebody that you just think might benefit from taking just a basic course on regulation, even just newer therapists, if you're interested, then reach out and get in touch and we can point you in the right direction. But I will hold you up no longer. Enjoy. We are wondering today about interoceptive processing and how it relates to, well, for me, how it relates to your polyvagal theory, because we've kind of been talking about that in terms of making sense of our arousal and then also whether we're safe or not, and then linking that to the states in our nervous system and then also understanding the different processing in those different states Um, and we were curious about interoception in the mix of these things because we talked about it a little bit in the um, episode where we talked about somatosensory processing and it being part of that processing and we wanted to know a little bit about or if we could flesh out I guess how interoception changes as we move through the different states so if we're in a ventral vagal state or we're in the social uh, engagement system And we're regulated and interoceptive processing is still weak. Like what kind of clinically should we be thinking about? What could we do around that? And then if we start to get stressed and we move into a sympathetic state, um, what I guess just inherently is disrupted in interoceptive processing in a more sympathetically activated state. And I know it's not as simple as just like pure sympathetic activation or pure uh, ventral vagal or any of that, but we'll maybe we'll, try to keep it as simple as possible just to talk about it, but maybe not because we like to go there (laughs) in this conversation. And then also maybe if we hit more of a dorsal vagal um, shutdown kind of immobilization states, what is potentially happening in the interoceptive processing in that space um, and what we can look out for clinically. And then also maybe what we can do to adjust our treatment depending on where kids are at. So what do you guys think? Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, a, it's a great episodes. sense of questions. Yeah. 
<laughs> next three episodes right on, Michelle. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. So I think it's really cool to think about each of these systems in such detail. The thing that's interesting for me is that, you know, it pulls into my mind because I've just studied the brain a lot and I think about it in a kind of, um, I don't think it's idiosyncratic the way that my brain works. Um, I, I'm kissing my brain, but um, <laughs> I think that it's a little bit of, I've disciplined myself to think about the pathways, to think about the tracks, to think about the receptors, to think about the where information goes and for the purpose of what, right? That's always my guiding question. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I think what happens so often in our thinking about these sensory integrative processes is that it, it's easy to uh, either be too general or too, too detailed. So in the podcast forum, because we don't have visuals, you know, we can kind of post a couple articles or whatever in the show notes, certainly. But because I'm picturing in my own mind's eye, the receptors, or I'm picturing the pathways, mm -hmm. or I'm thinking about the insula. Um, and, you know, we don't often say in a normal conversation to each other, like, I'm thinking about the insula. <laughs> Maybe, Maybe we should. should. Anterior <laughs> posterior actually tries. <laughs> That's right. So it brings up all those questions about where does interoception, what is it, where, how is it processed? And then it is connected to our state. And we can think about state really in a rich and beautiful way through the polyvagal theory. So I love thinking about it there. So that just gives us like a lot to talk about. And none of that is directly clinical. So of course, as I meander through some of these more of the what is the receptor doing then let's be sure that you guys help me to land it mm. back in clinical cases because i think this podcast is so beautiful that way the way we dialogue about the clinical implications and kind of how does how do we bring it to to life for us as occupational therapists and um yeah. So anyway, I just wanted to do Sounds that. Sounds good. Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, are you going to talk about the receptors and the interoceptor system today? Yeah. Trace? So I think we should touch base on it partly because it's an interesting thing when we, when we say state of the nervous system. So let's say that we're in a regulated yeah. ventral state, the receptors actually yeah. function differently than they do when we're in a dysregulated state. And so we, we think about wow. state sometimes as like happening in the autonomic or central nervous systems, but mm. it affects the receptor. And so it's mm. true that we have to think about the receptors. And if you think about your interoceptors, they're the, the deep somatosensory receptors that are in your body, but they are, we have interoceptors in our eyes and in our ears and, you know, throughout our oral facial structures, throughout our pharynx and larynx and our esophagus and in our lungs and in our heart and in our guts and in our vascular system, in our pressure throughout our connective tissue. It's really, they're everywhere, interoceptors. So sometimes I think we should start there by just saying that 
for us as occupational therapists, when we hear interoception, we really need to make sure we're always broadening beyond the visceral organs, which is what so Mm. many people think Mm. of when they think about interoceptors. And in that, we're going to tie together vestibular proprioceptors, tactile receptors, all into this category of interoception. Mm -hmm. So we're crossing categories all the time and we have Mm -hmm. to have the fluidity of thinking. It's not a rigid set of labels. And so does that feel comfortable Mm -hmm. to think about interoception that way? Yeah. In my mind, I've kind of looped it into the somatosensory processing piece, but then also I'm always thinking about the vestibular piece in amongst that because they they all form that body concept. I mean, everything does, but like they're the real receptors of the body of ourselves, I guess. So Mm. I kind of try to think about them, parcel them out when I can and put them back together as often as I can as well. Mm. I do too. And and probably think about tissues, like I guess fascia is part of that Mm. as well. So I don't kind of just think about it in terms of organs. Can I complicate things this early uh, and wonder about emotions like how because my understanding is your feelings and emotions and a sense of that in the body is part of interception as well and not just the tissue um within the body is how do you normally explain that to parents michelle i talk about it as having two aspects again this is um as in a way to, to put you on the spot. To, no, but it's just, I just want to say that I'm going to do it really simple, but I just really say that it's the internal expression in the body that is being noticed in the brain or may not be noticed in the brain. And that includes um, the tissues, the organs. So I usually break that down, you know, heart rate, blood pressure, thirst, um, bladder bowels is a really easy one to talk about. But um, so it's those organs, but it's also the feelings within the body and I guess I tease that about because some of the kids we work with or people we work with it can be easily noticed that they don't perceive that they're hot like their temperature regulation mightn't be noticed by the child or bladder and bowel so they might have some continence issues but I see that there's also this emotional dysregulation that's part of it. They're not noticing that they're getting a bit frustrated or nervous. And so that's kind of in noticing the internal landscape for them and knowing what to do about it is just as complicated and nuanced for the feelings as it is for the body system. So it's just really yeah. a story about saying what's happening on the inside. Trace, am I right though? I didn't get the nod. These <laughs> <laughs> feelings and emotions <clears throat> part of interception. A hundred percent. Yeah. So when we, sometimes you'll hear different OTs or often folks who are thinking a lot about emotion regulation or affective regulation, mm-hmm. they'll mm-hmm. start to get to the level of understanding that affect is the evaluation or the coding of the experience is sort of pre-emotion and that sensation and affect are dually coding for each other. Mm. And it's really actually through Mm. the interoceptive functions that carry that information to the amygdala and then into the insula actually where that dual coding is actually happening. Mm. But it's interesting in that there there is actual coding in the periphery too, mm. that is both mm. sensation and affective or, 
or more affective valence than just yeah. pure affect. So you mean like negative or positive in the periphery? Yeah. And I'm going to an extreme mm. example, but like if I touch something that's kind of sharp, then it's like right then and there negatively coated in the receptor right at my fingertip. And I know that's a really obvious example, but is that what you're meaning? Yeah, that's exactly right. It's also like the context for sensation mm. matters mm-hmm. so much. So sharp is sharp. Mm, so sharp yeah. is a threat, yeah. right? But let's think about something like social touch. Okay. Mm. And then social mm. touch on different parts of your body. So my mm. daughter recently moved back to Colorado after living in New York city for 10 years. And so she kind of went from being a teenager because she moved there when she was beginning university. And so she was in her late teens still when she moved there. Let's have a hiatus and talk about my interoception of letting my daughter move <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> to New York no. city when she was 18. <laughs> That's a separate story. (laughs) But, you know, so she spent formative early adult years and then is now a full grown adulting person, right? But it's so this comes back to social touch in that in our family, we are quite tactile with each other. We're super cuddly. We like to spend that kind of time together. And one of the things she was laughing about was that it's quite common for her to come in if I'm sitting in our family room and she sits on the couch next to me. She would sit down over there, maybe, because it's like an L-shaped couch. You can see my L if we're on the video. But, <laughs> yes. And so she might sit there so we can have an easy conversation. But at some point, she's going to migrate closer and closer because she's going to want a shoulder rub or, a you know, like a tactile yeah. kind of connected yeah. moment. Yeah. And then we were laughing about it because she's quite aware that she doesn't really like people to touch her neck unless it's in that context. And so we were talking about, we were actually talking about interoception the other day because she said, why is that? Like, why is it that if my neck is so off limits, unless it's in this context where then it's like, I can't get enough. And so that's all based on this evaluative system and the coding that's happening in the affective system, in the attachment, but in the connection and in the relationship system and how that sets a different scene and tone for how the receptors actually are functioning. And so what's interesting about that is that if you are not open to receive the receptors themselves become more bristly. They're like, no, they're more rejecting and more likely to receive the information in a defensive way, in a protective way, not just over response, but defensive protection, right? Mm -hmm. Versus Mm -hmm. when we feel the warmth of Mm -hmm. the interoceptive experience and that that Mm. opens and creates a spaciousness in the receptors themselves Mm. to be open Mm. to being touched. And so there's this powerful thing happening there, right? Isn't that cool? Yeah, it's super cool. I kind of talk Mm. about this as like, it's not my example, but I've read it out in multiple places, but the last place I saw it was, I think it was in Affective Neuroscience by Jacques. 
Pang's step. And he was talking about context for processing of, of affect and that situation of the dark car park at night. It's the most clear, mm-hmm. obvious example people can resonate with because we all feel a little more on edge when you're uh, alone and you're walking to your car and it's dark and it's, you know, and your whole nervous system is shifted into a more protective defensive state so that you can respond if you need to, because the context of that environment drives our processing. Mm. Um, And I, I think that's, yeah, it just makes so much sense. It helps integrate this information around sensory processing and state and this, Mm. this dynamic that we have around it, but I'd never, I don't think I'd ever really wholly fully included the receptors. So I think you're right in my, in my thinking, I probably was thinking more about state centrally and not really like Mm. you'd see it in the body, but, but I've never really thought it even changes down to the level of the receptor, the way that it's going to just valently, like that's not a word, but positively or negatively Mm. receive the input, I guess. Um, And it shifts Mm. that valence in a certain direction. uh, And that makes a lot of sense to me. And it sets the tone, doesn't it, really? And it's interesting in your both those examples that should your daughter be touched on the neck or feel like she's been touched on the neck in the dark alleyway, that you know <laughs> is very, very different to her being with you and her being really comfortable, but having some personal space and then looking at you in a way that's conducive to a you know conversation. And she's approaching you, her body then is like, yes. okay, I need some more, you know, proximity, yeah. touch, whatever. But she's even opened up to you in the family room that's a known space. But I guess she's coming back and there's some newness to that. But it's like even then there's, I don't know, with some people you come right in. I love that, Michelle, the, the approach part of it. As it comes back to that control, like in we're talking about in treatment, one of the big things for safety mm. is be giving control back. Um, and I think obviously for your daughter, Tracy, her being in control of the approach around the input. And of course, like your mom, like <laughs> you're a whole different person in terms of safety and all that you represent for her. But yeah, she, she in the approach, right? Like that changes the nervous system in itself. There's a drive for it. There's a request for it then. So then she's like, you know, and obviously that's what she's reflecting. I was like, Hey, how come I want for you to touch my neck and I'm I'm coming for you to touch my neck, but it doesn't work like that for other people in other times. So, so fascinating that she can even talk that through (laughs) and that we as OTs that talk about all the things that we do and it's such a personal growth experience (laughs) in our clinic, you know, because we're observing each other (laughs) do life really. Yeah, totally. It's just interesting where our little kids with, you know, or people with not the language and not the knowing, it's like no wonder it's really awkward. I think I told you about another little boy but I saw him yesterday. He runs at me like he's going to tackle me around the legs and give me the gorgeous hug yet last time I explained that he did it around my face his hands around my face and just literally like oh yesterday he ran to me and pulled up short about and I kind of bobbed down crouched down to be with him he stopped about a foot from me and we just literally just were like oh I'm so excited but there was such a mobilized approach and energy 
but he doesn't need the tactile component mm. of it to be expressing and probably receiving warmth or joy or approach for me it was just the running and the stopping anyway we're, we're, we're digressing a little from interception but I don't know that it mm. is because I think he knows I don't need to touch you Michelle to get that juice from seeing you it's really hard not to you know, it's so natural for me to yeah. have them come up and literally encircle my legs or whatever. He does it. And because I do love touch, it's hard. I have to think about it to not touch him and really yeah. kind of follow his lead to be like, where are you going? <laughs> you know, where, how far are your hands going to come up to my little face but not touch me? Yeah. <laughs> so cute. Yeah, and just attuned to that really. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, you know, our biases, our internal motivations around what feels right to us is informed by our interoceptive processing across all the different mm. interoceptors, whether they're visceral or tactile, proprioceptive, external receptors, or vestibular kind of the vibration receptors, the ones that mm. pick up on the on the zhuzh of what's going on around us. All of those things mm. tell us and reinforce to us our tendencies and proclivities. But as we kind of tune into them, even for little ones, they'll tune into that and use it as a go signal. Mm. Yes, go ahead and hug me or a stop signal. No, maybe not so much. And right away, even in very little children, we pick up on these cues from each other mm. around the social boundaries, social mm. space, what feels comfortable, what doesn't feel comfortable. And it's all based in this neuroceptive function of comfort mm. and safety versus the opposite of that, mm. which feels threatening or uncomfortable, disruptive, um, or something I need to protect myself from. So that valence-based function that neuroception is picking up is really driven by interoceptors in very many ways. Of course, it's through all of the sensory systems, but they're going to be processed through this low route and then eventually into the insula. And, and so that that's where we pick up that cueing. Um, and mm. it does... Uh, inform us, you know, for me, I'm kind of a hugger, but I'm going to pick up on cues pretty fast if somebody's not a hugger. And I might interact with folks who are not huggers and you either learn that about them or, and that, and there's no qualitative judgment about is the hugger or the non-hugger the you know way yeah. to be. It's like what works for you. Yeah. Uh, there's a colleague of mine here in Denver who started a new podcast recently, actually, that's kind of about this. It's it's not about interoception. It's mm. about the social experience and all of our neurodiversity. Mm. But I love the name of their podcast. It's called um, You Don't Want to Hug, right? <laughs> because... <laughs> Yeah, because her starting space is no, thank you very much. And, you know, my starting space is sort of thank you very much. So both are awesome. Yeah, bring it in. And uh, I think that's sort of sweet. Cool. Thought it would be worth mentioning. Yeah, that. I'd have to yeah. check it out. This is where the social piece and the cognitive piece and that it, 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 tuning in, because if you're really um, 
focused internally because you might be tactile defensive, that you really have a strong sensation of fluctuations in temperature or, you know, bowel, you may be so focused internally that you don't even tune in to you're not a hugger. And so I come on in because I am and my focus is on my internal story or the opposite, you know, that I'm so focused on the story externally that I don't notice what's happening for myself internally and I get really tired and thirsty and, you know, whatever. But I can see how things can go wrong really quickly if you're not able to shift um, the attentional system from internal to external um, scapes or whatever your environments really fast and then know that um, either pick it up very quickly from neuroception but also from, you know, your social knowing and other people's perspective. Like there's so much social skill or capacity required to make those nuances because if you just do a little sidestep trace to avoid a cuddle coming in, Somebody has to notice that and go, oh, that mm. that that angling back might mean mm. she's like, well, or step back is like that. That's the definite no hug. Um, versus uh, my need for a hug is so great that I'm not even gonna. I'm not tuning into what your needs are. I'm I'm just fulfilling my own mm. at the moment. Yeah. So if there's any kind of a neurodiversity around our interception functions and or social and or executive functioning. I can see how it just can go wrong. Yeah. <laughs> My brain goes many directions, but what you were talking about, Michelle, made me think about the relationship that we have with a caregiver early on that can help us tune in to the experience and code that experience for us. And Mm. that without that, we might be a little wayward in our ability to, to make sense of those internal signals and, you know, not just interoception, but the whole body, like, and people helping us code that experience. Mm. Um, But before someone helps me label and understand and make sense a bit more cognitively of the, interceptive processing Tracy I was wondering earlier we were talking about um, emotions or feelings and these words get confusing but I'm curious about the pickup of that in the body do I guess it depends on the receptor so first of all I'm kind of wondering do we actually know what the receptors look like in, in interoceptive processing because that I don't know I'm weird I I helps me to know actually what the receptor physically looks like sometimes I know that's really detailed but the reason I like to know that is because I want to know how it gets activated and and then that helps me understand what the process is so I just do we know that well enough of like what's the receptor how does it pick up and what is actually the is it a physical change is it a chemical change like how can we talk about that or am I leading us wayward here yeah well I want to try to answer it I think it's such a good thing to try to grapple with so 
the receptors, most interoceptive receptors are somatosensory receptors, but they change depending on the state. So that's the thing that can get a little bit complicated to try to trace out and track out. And that feels to me like a little bit um, tricky to do here. But if you, if we like, let's just stick with any particular receptor. Let's say that we're thinking about the stretch receptors in our viscera or around our heart or lungs, um, in our ears or in our mouths or in our throats. So the tension, the relative tension, that's a stretch receptor. Those are proprioceptors Mm -hmm. and they are interoceptors. Mm -hmm. If you are in a state of like blissful excitement and you are ready to have a dialogue with a friend. So that would be describing us right now. Um, We have a certain degree of tension that is being produced through the vagal circuitry, through the interoceptors, to bring our voices into a bit more connected melodic quality because mm-hmm. we're feeling warm and engaged with each other and we're really working to be connected across space and time and to share this moment that we love doing together so the stretch receptors are constraining so the sensory processing tends to direct and constrain and enhance processing through that process, right? So the receptors themselves are changed based on the state Mm -hmm. and the, and the number of receptors and the quality of receptors are also changed based on that state. So if instead, you know, I was in a dorsal shutdown kind of state, the quality of my ability to even access my voice might be shut down. So I might become selectively mute and I might not even be able to mobilize the sensory motor function of my vocal system Mm. because I'm in so much shutdown. And that's a change in the receptors themselves. So they they change Mm. constantly. Mm. The initial change, the valence-based change is actually electrical. Um, And that's the first thing that changes in the sequential processing. Then it becomes chemical and it becomes complicated chemical soup, right? Mm. Um, So that is a story of up and down (laughs) regulation, inhibition, disinhibition, Mm, you know, facilitation, all of those things are happening within the chemical system. But it initially is based on this neuroceptive signaling of a sensory affective quality that tells us, is this Mm. a good thing? Do I want more of it? Do I want Mm. less of it? And those are all interoceptive signals that come from the receptors. Okay. Can I see if I can wrap my head around it? So we, if at the moment, just in this conversation, we're in more of a ventral vagal space, we feel more open and more connected so we can have this fun conversation. And in that space, um, and maybe it's chicken or egg, but at the moment we'll start with we're in that space. And in that comes the signaling from like, whenever I smile, I get the receptors in my face and I have more access to that function. I guess I get more signal and I guess they feedback. I'm in this state and now I'm doing these things and the proprioceptors are telling me 
that this is a joyful experience and I'm getting the continued sustained interaction between the information in my body and then the state and that I'm checking in with that all the time, I guess that they're at a match, I'm assuming. So if a signal came in and it wasn't a, didn't feel good or I was like, I'm unsure or I'm thinking really hard or whatever, then maybe I have less access to my open engagement. It kind of gets shut off a little bit and then the body kind of does the same thing in terms of the proprioceptors change in the way that I'm using them and then in the way that I can access them. Um, That's right. Even just for functions right. around talking. Okay. And I guess, mm-hmm. yeah, it can drive the other direction, I guess, can't it? Like they can drive each other in this bio, this direction of mm. the receptor can drive the shift in the state and the state can drive the shift in the receptor. And it's, again, chicken or egg. Um, but I guess we have to look yeah. at the dynamic, mm. don't we? Right. And because we're in a trusting, safe relationship with each other and we don't um, tend to give each other very many signals of uncertainty, then we can stay in a pretty continuous flow with each other. Mm. We've all Um, experienced lots and lots and lots of social interactions pretty much on a daily basis where the safety isn't a thousand percent established and the trust and connection isn't a thousand percent solid. And you say something to somebody and you get that little pause where you're literally having a mismatch. We're Mm. like, Hmm, did that land Mm. for that Mm. person? And we even may say that Mm. uh, out loud (laughs) at once we're aware, we certainly, our nervous system is, is asking that question Mm. right away before we ever say it. So this kind of gets into the deeper part of interoceptive processing and the posterior and anterior parts of the insula and how those kind of connect back to the, the deeper circuitry that's lower than the insula and the circuitry that surrounds the insula that uh, allows for social and higher level executive and cognitive and language skills to kind of help us with the storying of what's happening in the anterior parts of the insula. Mm. So the higher parts of the insula, we think about as interoceptive awareness. So we have an awareness, but the lower centers, there isn't a conscious awareness of it. Mm. It's the part where you get the signal where something doesn't feel Mm -hmm. comfortable or where something feels like it's shifting. So when neuroception signals to us that Mm -hmm. there's a slight constraining or shifting off of pure safety, Mm -hmm. we start to have this little bit of a different experience. And a lot of that is going to get processed, you know, pretty broadly through the brainstem in autonomic functions, in the limbic system, but certainly in the posterior parts of the insula. Mm. And what happens is there's a mismatch then between what's expected and what's happening. And it's the mismatch that actually signals us, oh, I'm having an emotion. I'm having uncertainty. Mm. I'm having a trigger of wonder. I'm having a trigger of pause, of I was in full approach, but maybe now I need to pause and I'm sort of a, oops, you know? Mm. So as soon as we have that happen, that sort of shifts us into this more awareness-based process. And that is a much more cognitively mediated process Mm. than the lower parts, which are not at all based in awareness. Mm. Um, Is that that clear? Yeah, I think so. Super helpful. Yeah. So you have an initial neuroception around 
safety or not. So that valence of like, is this positive or is it negative? And it's coming in through all of the sensory receptors and they're depending on the state, they're receiving that in certain ways. But if you, that information comes in and goes up into the brain, is taken up into the brain, goes through the brainstem, obviously the amygdala, some of the, like you talk about low route processing. So the lower, lower components in the brain there that sends it up in through to the insula, which is sort of more central in my, it's kind of low, but central. What do you, would you say? Yeah, it's a pretty big structure and it really does go from, you know, more frontally oriented parts of it that are anterior, but the posterior parts of the insula are really technically in the lower limbic system. They're subconscious and they're Mm -hmm. really interacting more with autonomic and brainstem functions. Right. So that it hits that spot. And if it Mm -hmm. hits that spot and we are in a certain, well, you said you used approach. So like if we're in a place where things are feeling like let's just imagine we're 100 percent safe maybe that never happens but <laughs> like imagine you're in 100 percent of safety and then suddenly you get a neuroceptive signal that mm, maybe you do need to not be in an approach right now you need to change so initially just subconsciously hits those parts in the brain and then that it's a mismatch to what like what would we call that if it's the signal is now changed and now we need to shift out of approach it's a mismatch in the insula, but how? Yeah. So part of it is that if our awareness is I'm safe yeah. and this feels good to me, we have that pre-perceptual. So most of neuroception is not really, it's below the level of perception, Yeah. but mm-hmm. then it tips into perception because the processing is continual and it's temporal and it's, you know, it's happening in a live feed all the time. And so what is not perception becomes perception and it becomes awareness. Mm. So when you first have a sense of safety, then you know you are safe. So awareness comes. And the mismatch is, um, you know, we get that intuitive almost feeling. It's this kind of, Mm. you know, rapid, oh, there's something that doesn't feel right anymore. the mismatch is really critical because it, and it, it's a mismatch partly in the insula. So the insula is like the awareness part of the anterior insula processing mm. is telling us this is what's happening to you. And then when it shifts, it's like something shifted. Mm. And because mm. this is all based on a valence and we have an expectancy kind of paradigm, if mm. we're in safety and it shifts out, the shift is away from safety. Mm. So the mismatch is I was safe, but now I'm not. Right. So it pulls um, that, and that. Oh, sorry. You go. No, go ahead. I was going to say, so it pulls that, that pre-perception, not a subconscious processing. This change in signal pulls in the awareness processing to then go, Hey, something changed. Maybe we need to change behavior. Like now we pull in cognitive awareness of the experience and then and it might be really quickly and rapid like obviously usually it's probably pretty rapid that we do that but there is a a blending of the two I guess so I'm just wondering Mm. about treatment like what do you think Michelle well uh, I'm just thinking of keep using us as an example Corey so you and I if we which we do sometimes not quite get each other but because we're bathed in safety mostly but if I say something a bit sharper or blunt (laughs) or whatever and there's just a oh what does she mean by that 
I'm still mostly bathed in safety. My, you know, when it when it moves up to perception of, it's a curiosity yeah. of what did you mean by that? Yeah. Or, you know, did I get that right? Yeah. Or, but um, it's dampened that down so I won't go so mobilized. Yeah. But I've picked up there's a, oh, there was a curiosity, there was a bump. And then I do that from a, a social exec functioning, yeah. pull in, hey, what yeah. happened there? I noticed that. And then we're like, ah, oh, you know, blah, 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 blah. And, and yeah. then we yeah. keep going yeah. kind of thing. So that's how I'm perceiving it. But if you, are not in such a consistently safe environment that miscuing might more mm. rapidly escalate to a whoa uh, something happened and if it's a big cue or you're not invested in the person oh, I might just walk yeah. away <laughs> you know what I mean if it's in the street yeah. it's like oh it's like actually I'm not exploring that that was a mismatch and yeah no worries mate see you later <laughs> you know it's just like bye I'm out of there and you don't check out did I get yeah, that yeah. right anyway I was just trying to give a social example of uh, how that cascade might happen and that if you're in safety, you might dampen that down. Um, but if you're in a context which isn't so queuing of safety, so back in the alley, you're just going to take the nuance of, oh, there's a mismatch and you might be out of there and have a much stronger or less inhibited reaction to it. And maybe mismatch. appropriately so. Absolutely. <laughs> and maybe that the context is like you were yeah. right to like yeah. out of that alley. But I wonder if that's what's happening in the clinic, that there's a, a little something goes or a big something, a perception of a, something goes wrong and we see the kiddo have a bigger reaction to it and, and pull away and, and then we have to try and uncover what bit happened there was it a loud sound of my voice was it the social stuff was it not winning and you bail yeah. and that's not purely interception but maybe it's a sensation of I've got to do a wee and it's coming really fast and I don't feel it till it's um really ready and I've got a full bladder and I just got to go and I can't stay here in this interaction anymore I agree Michelle <laughs> I just such respond to that beautiful comment. But yeah, can we talk a little bit about now then the states? Like, because Michelle's talking here about moving into a flight or a like a, that mobilization. I'm thinking about mm -hmm. the sympathetic nervous system pulling in and then resourcing us to deal with the potential threat. But mm. I wonder then how that imp interacts with interoceptive processing. Probably, I mean, I guess on both fronts, on the awareness, on our ability to perceptually be aware of our interoceptive processing and then also on the not awareness because I assume yeah. it impacts mm. both that subconscious processing of interoception probably gets altered but then also the conscious awareness what we will pay attention to in a mobilized state is going to be different as well so um uh, yeah, can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. All of this is so interesting because it does make us move in our thinking and not silo our thinking to, mm. oh, it's an interoceptive problem, mm. so I'm going to mm. treat it interoceptively. Or it's mm. a social engagement issue or it's, um, you know, whatever happens to be because these things are interacting with each mm. other across this mm. neural circuitry. Yeah. So the polyvagal system is one part of that. And then interoceptive mm -hmm. processing itself is a part of that. Mm -hmm. And then our social and 
problem solving, you know, all of these <laughs> things, right? They're yeah. interactive. So that's why we need a tool like the spirit, honestly, yeah. is to sort it yeah. so we can try to identify clinically where are the strengths and where's really robust resource available for this kiddo mm. or whoever, this family, us, ourselves, yeah. maybe, or like, what are we going to be targeting a bit in interventions? So our state, if we're in a ventral state, like we're here together in a ventral state, we feel safe and we feel connected and we can operate from that. If we get a mismatch in our social interaction, which happens, it's yeah. it's happened in this podcast even a few yeah. times, right? Yeah. Where we kind of miss time or what, and part of that's just the technology, but it's human interaction is funny that way. So when that happens, the mismatch to us it is a neuroceptive cue before we're aware of it. It's a neuroceptive cue, but we're not tipping out of safety. And so mm -hmm. the neuroceptive function, you know, it organizes a approach avoidance and it really organizes activation and deactivation based on what is the valence doing itself. And so if we're in safety and we're in engagement, we're going to pretty much stay in that steady state until the interaction or cues change, it could be that the cues from our body change. So if we're in a really robust, deep conversation, we can't sustain it forever. And we inevitably, we run out of energy, we run out of air, we can't sustain the ooeyness for a long, long time. And so we inevitably get an interoceptive cue that we need to shift something. Mm. And that shift when we stay in ventral is available to us, we can make lots of choices. The thing about the state dependency is that as soon as you're not in ventral, um, and you could be in a blended state. So you could be partially in ventral, mm -hmm. but you could start to have a mobilization into sympathetic activation for whatever cue would shoot you there. And then you have a little bit less spacious choice available to you mm. in what's on the horizon for you. And as that becomes narrow and, and more constrained and more pushed by the state, the interoceptive cues follow. And so mm. regulation begets regulation, dysregulation begets dysregulation. It's mm. the kindling process is mm. happening. Mm. And, and this is what happened, Corey. We had a business meeting yesterday, <laughs> um, which we were very invested yeah. in. And I needed to go to the toilet by the end of it. So the meeting finished and um, Corey Zoomed me so we could finish our component of the conversation. And she was like, how are you going? I was like, it's all really awesome, but I need to go to the toilet. <laughs> and then it was like, okay, blah, 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 blah. And, and anyway, at the end, I yeah. cared less. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yep, yeah, no worries. I've got to go to the toilet. I'm going to wet my pants. See you later. <laughs> like literally, <laughs> I went from this has got a hundred percent and I was probably in a blended state. I'd been thinking about it a lot and very excited. So it was ventral and sympathetic. I am less able to tune in. I can hyper-focus and so I think I'll tune into my body less. I'd had back-to-back -back sessions as well, i got to say. So I hadn't noticed, oh, you you got your bladder 30% full, Michelle, maybe you should, you know, whatever, 50%. So I had this exciting, exciting, had no cues, probably 
probably in the meeting and then at the end of the meeting when it was like, ah, oh, that went really well, it was like, oh, you've really <laughs> got to go to the toilet. And so I knew Corey would ring. So it was like, hey, how are you going? Yeah, I should have let you pants. go. But then again, that's my not queuing in being like, I just want to talk about this. <laughs> oh, fun times. Which I just did too. So eventually I was like, okay, safety, safety, Corey, Corey, juicy content. This is awesome. Suppress the need to go to the toilet. Hang in there, hang in there. Till interception was like, you are going to wear yeah. your pants yeah. and you don't leave. <laughs> is that about that attentional system? Chase, I think about that attention and ability to shift in and out and Mm. certainly in that focus state that you know that has that sympathetic activation to hold your focus we're less able I guess to tune in to to keep us in that state and we were driven to stay in that state to have that meeting or this podcast we tune out a little like under my conscious awareness am I really monitoring my internal landscape as much as I am if I'm just going to go vacuum in the house after the podcast kind of thing. So is is that what's happening? Do I suppress my, not suppress, do I not shift my attention internally, externally as frequently and automatically when I'm really invested in something? So, so can the attentional system drive issues with um, interception? Oh, absolutely it can. Yeah. So if you if you have a harder time, you know, using that attention or shifting, it definitely can make it harder. It's a cognitive resource to pay attention to it, mm. but you don't need to pay attention to it until the valence shifts. So you don't need to pay attention mm. to your bladder control once you have bladder control. Mm. until your bladder starts Mm. to get full. And it's the stretch receptors and the full feeling that start to shift the signal to say, wait, pay Mm. attention to me because something's happening here that's meaningful. So (laughs) the meaning of the sensation becomes heightened Mm. when it becomes heightened. Mm. Until Mm. then, you aren't inhibiting it. It just isn't salient enough Mm. that it... It, and mm-hmm. the the valence hasn't called your attention to it, but attention is a tricky function that is really mm-hmm. a big, huge topic that maybe we can entertain mm-hmm. in a future episode in a bit more detail. But I, I think about it mm-hmm. like in the anterior insula, okay, as soon as you really have a deep thirst And the valence tips, like this isn't just you're ignoring your body. No, you really are deeply thirsty and you really need it. Then the interoceptive awareness will become a stronger signal. Mm. And whatever the rest of your frontal cortex is doing in the attentional system, it's like, hey, buddy, knock it off. Pay attention over here, finally. (laughs) And so once the anterior insula gets fussy like that, it will draw your attention away from Mm. the other things your attention system is so very busy doing all the time. Mm. And so the anterior Mm. insula is, it sort of becomes nudgy 
and we want it to do so. Mm. That's its job, actually. So that's the individual differences, Tracy, because I see that some kiddos' valence is perhaps set differently. So I had a really articulate um, little girl I was working with and she was able to draw out on a scale that her first knowing or perception that she had to go to the toilet is she perceived herself at um, her bladder was about eight or nine like full on a scale of 10 and that if she was in the playground and had a long way to go she would have to go immediately but she couldn't run because that put pressure on it anyway it was so fascinating that there was no valence tipping for her or you know the um, anterior insula wasn't um, getting nudgy getting antsy and demanding that attention earlier and that's why continence issue was such an issue for her when she got the signal and she was like oh I'm off I gotta go do that and she knew to do that it just came mm. late for her um, yeah so can we shift that trace can we yeah shift to violence at that receptor. Yeah. So it also brings up um, the really important dual processing of discrimination as well. Mm -hmm. So the, if you really have an urgency, that's a valence tip and that's going to drive it. But before the urgency becomes critical, so the urgent signal should be closer to like a four or five, and Mm, then that should be enough for you to have discriminative awareness of those Mm -hmm. interoceptors and awareness can come not just from the valence tip, but just from there's a qualitative difference here that I'm tuning into. And so for Mm -hmm. a lot of kiddos that takes a long developmental course, even in some kids, especially boys are a little slower with this and it takes a little longer to develop that awareness for urgency for urination, for instance. So there's kind of a lot of different themes we're talking about here. But for Mm, this kiddo, you know, you can improve both. You can improve your reactivity to the valence. Mm. So we have a lot of kids that we see for toileting needs where they're averse to toileting because they hate the feeling. Mm. And so that's Mm. more of a modulation, valence-based kind of intervention that you're doing versus the kiddo that you're trying to build the awareness when it's not urgent, Mm. the pre-urgent valence driven, but the earlier sensory discrimination driven. So, Mm. you know, Kelly Mahler Mm. is an OT who she and her colleagues in Pennsylvania have done all of this incredible work around researching this and developing some interventions and, you know, but they're very interoceptive awareness based interventions. So Mm. you work on, building actual awareness of tactile discrimination of knowing whether something is soft or hard or wet or dry or cold or hot or um, squishy Mm. or uh, pushable or whatever. You do all of this sort of sensory discrimination building across the tactile system, across all of our systems and including across Mm. our internal sensory motor ability to squeeze Mm. our tummies or take a deep breath or blow hard or all these different functions that they're really interoceptively based, but they're also in our awareness. So that's an important Mm. set of interventions, but a lot of our kids, Mm. the issue is 
pre that. It's more in the posterior insula and it's in the lower functions. So I think we have to be discerning about, you know, if, if you're working with this little girl you're talking about only around the valence and urgency, then we're going to miss the part around her sensory discrimination. Mm -hmm. But if we only work on the sensory discrimination, she may always feel some level of negative valence for going to the toilet because she associates it with urgency. She may associate it with, I never make it on time. And then, mm -hmm. you know, it, it brings up all of these sense of self issues. It can be a lot of interceptive cues can be deep shame triggers for any of us, mm -hmm. even for very little children. And we have to be really aware of that. So yeah, it brings up a lot of issues mm. for our treatment for mm. sure. Oh, that's probably where we should go in our next episode. Because ah. um, I'm amazed we have chewed through time today and I did not even realize. There you this. go. Perception of time. Obviously, we didn't get any interceptive cues to say, hey, pull up, you guys. <laughs> Maybe I just ignored them so invested. Um, no, that's been such a useful conversation. I don't know if I've ever heard this discussed prior to this conversation. So I'm hoping other people have some fun thoughts about it as well. Um, and maybe, yeah, we can think about what we dive into in the next episode, jumping off of this one. Yeah. We'll look forward to questions from listeners around this topic or any of the topics and look forward to going in the treatment direction mm. around this in a little bit more detail. Mm. Yeah. Great. 